Okay, so I'm here with Ian Rankin, who is most recently the author of The Complaints. Ian, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk with the Scotsman on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and not an Irishman on St. Andrew's Day. That'll be your next one, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, it's a kind of crazy day to end up in uh, New York. Of all the days my publisher could have brought me to New York. Yes. Was it pure accident or practical uh, As jokes? far as I know, it's pure accident. I mean, they, they only thought afterwards about the difficulty of getting a hotel room or a... Uh, a place to eat tonight, you know. Oh, yeah. So uh, they got you a place to eat tonight, or they, I think they've booked us a little Italian restaurant because they reckon that might be a little bit quieter. <laughs> yeah, nobody eats Italian on St. Patrick's Day, of course. Yeah, I don't know. All yeah. the Irish Italians do. <laughs> okay, um, I wanted to first of all start off with a rather odd question about description uh, for Linda Dearborn. You write that her outfit would have had church ministers walking into lampposts. You don't stop there. You then follow up with a description of her pleated miniskirt and a blouse with the first four buttons undone. Whereas with a guy like Joe Naismith, uh, you have a situation where you merely describe him as six months in, still keen. This is very curious to me because in the later Rebus books you get more descriptive, and I'm wondering how you balance the detail of description with a character or a decor. Have you perfected any science by now after so many books? Or? No, I don't think there's any science to it. I think it's just how you feel on any one particular day and whether you think someone is larger than life. If someone is intended to be larger than life, say a gangster or a vamp, you know, some very seductive woman, you may feel the need to do a little bit more description. Um, if it's someone who's going to play a fairly um, benign part in the story, you know, they're, going to, they're just there to ask a few questions and give some clues to the reader, you maybe don't feel you need to put in as much description. I'd, I, I don't describe the central characters much in my books. You yeah. know, there'll be a kind of couple of lines at the start of the book and then that's basically it. Uh, Rebus, I have no idea what he looks like. Um, uh, and when I reread the books fairly recently, I found there's very little physical description of yeah. him. His hair color, his eyes, you know, his height. Um, you get kind of. I, I like the reader to do the work. I like readers to put their own faces there. Of course, that's problematic when they then see it on television or in a movie and they go, well, that's not how I uh, imagined the character. Yes, you abandon the character at the right moment so that you don't have to contend with competing physical descriptions or what's on the television versus what's in the books, allegedly at least. Well, I, I mean, I've never watched the TV because I didn't yeah. want actors' voices and faces interfering with the kind of pictures I already had, such yeah. as they were. But the main characters, I mean, whether it's Malcolm Fox in the complaints or whether it's Rebus, I'm looking out at the world through their eyes. Yeah. So I'm not really seeing them. So I don't need, I don't feel the need to describe them too much. So you feel that the best way to have a character heading a series is to essentially be in their skin that you don't really know because you're not really looking them in the mirror at yourself or at Rebus or at Fox. Or there's, there's a little bit of that. I mean, I, you know, I'm not quite sure what kind of character pulls a story along uh, or you know is a series going to be a series I mean I've no idea how many books I'm going to write with Malcolm Fox for example yeah. minimum two because I'm finishing the second one at the moment yeah but is there going to be a third I don't know uh, with Rebus it was never intended to be a series it just became a series by accident as it were um, so I'm not sure about that I mean I do know that it was important to me that when I invented Fox people wouldn't just take him as Rebus light yeah you know Rebus with a new branding or a new image um, but what was good was that to be an internal affairs cop, you've got to be a very different kind of guy from Rebus. You know, Rebus is the kind of guy that internal affairs cops investigate. He's not the kind of guy who would be an internal affairs cop. You've got to be cautious, careful, quiet, toe the line, follow the rules, work well on a team, be a professional voyeur, not be anarchic like Rebus, not being a bull in a china shop like Rebus. 
So that was good because that was a challenge to see if I could actually make him a, a compelling character. Yeah. Someone who's kind of quiet and careful. Is that going to be a compelling character? Your maverick is always a compelling character. But how about someone who isn't a maverick? Can you still make them interesting for the reader? Yes. Well, speaking of the differences between Rebus and Fox, I noticed that... Uh Perfect. Yeah, we're, we're next to a dumper. We didn't tell people I that, right? Really, yeah. you know, bodies are being tipped into the dumper as we speak. Yeah. Um, all right, what, what the hell? He's never going to stop. <laughs> yeah. um, so Rebus is a guy who has very specific taste in music. Uh, yeah. He likes the Stones. He likes Leonard Cohen. But what's interesting about Fox is that his taste in music is extremely general. You describe him listening yeah. to music that's vaguely... Brazilian. Yeah. There's another point where he's tapping his fingers on the steering wheel, and he's that's pretty much all he knows in terms of, of uh, music. And I'm wondering um, if if such a effort to have Fox's taste in music being so just general was kind of along these lines. Uh, and and what were there other uh, character qualities that sort of uh, yeah. heavily I mean, diverged along the Again, line? I had to differentiate him yeah. from Rebus. You know, people have had Rebus in their hearts for 20 years. Somehow I've got to persuade people this guy isn't Rebus, yeah. you know. It's not just Rebus with a different face. So I, I thought, well, he can't like music. In fact, that was, a, that was a mistake. I wish in retrospect I'd gone the other way and made him a musician. Uh-huh. Have him play an instrument. Yeah. But I decided he wouldn't listen much to music. He wouldn't be a fan of music. Uh, he doesn't smoke or drink. Yeah. Um, so that differentiates him from Rebus again. Rebus lives in an apartment in the centre of Edinburgh. Uh, Malcolm Fox lives in a bungalow, a kind of small, you know, detached house in the outskirts. Um, all kinds of things where I, I just was trying to f make sure that in my own head I wasn't recasting Rebus, yeah. I think. Um, so there was an awful lot of that went on. I think that'll all disappear in book two, and if there's a book three, in book three, four, five. You know, once you've decided in your own head, okay, this guy definitely is different from Rebus then, you know, some similarities can be allowed to creep in. Yeah. You know, if he wants a drink, maybe he can take a drink in future. If he wants to listen to proper music, maybe he can listen to some proper music. The important thing is to keep him open-ended enough so that if you decide he has a character quality or a tortured past or something along those lines, you can introduce it for the sake of convenience here. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I don't think he has got a, a, You know, when I invented Rebus, there was a lot of backstory. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff that had happened in his past. I don't get the sense of that being there with Fox. Yeah. Um... What he has got that Rebus didn't have is he's got a, a kind of complex family life. Yeah. He's very close to his father. He's very close to his sister. Rebus pushed his family away from him. You got very little sense that he was close to his family, especially in the later books. Yeah. He's got an ex-wife and he's got a daughter, but you hardly ever see them in the later books. And in the final book in the series, I, I thought, oh, should I bring them back? Would that kind of you know make it a circular journey for him? If we get to, do we need to tie up every single loose end? Yeah. And I thought, no, we don't need to tie up every single loose end because we might be seeing him again in the future anyway. I should point out that in the Black Book, Rebus's father is mentioned. He lived in a miner's row, and you indicated elsewhere that he was based upon your own father, who yeah. died in 1990. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious about Fox's father and whether. He fulfills a similar role. Is there less of autobiographical connection, uh, or are you just past the point? Like, well, look, he's been gone for about 20 years, so it's uh, I can now I'm now free to invent and, and run with the ball here. Anything along those lines? I, I mean, I'm possibly not the person to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe if I was sitting with a psychiatrist or something <laughs> or a psychoanalyst, that would all come out. I mean, there are a lot of. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of dead mothers in, in my books. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Fox's mother uh, has passed away. Uh, Rebus's 
Rebus was brought up with a with a, a, a brother and by his father uh, there was no mother there and my mother died when I was 18 19 so there you know maybe that's just me going well this is what I know this is the kind of um, person I can relate to the kind of character I can relate to because I lost a mother quite young as well yeah um, the dad thing I mean I you know I um, I don't know I mean I'm kind of frustrated that neither of my parents was around to see me be a success um, and there's something about, you know, Malcolm Fox is a success at what he does. I mean, he's got a career and he's making enough money so that he can afford for his father to be in a private nursing home. Um, so maybe his relationship with his dad is the kind of relationship that I figure I would have had or might have had if my father had remained alive to see me be a success. Um, I mean, he, he, he lived long enough to see me publish a couple of books, but he had no idea I was going to be successful at it. Yeah. And I hadn't, at that stage, given up the day job. I was still working on a magazine in London when he died. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess all kids want to sort of prove to their parents that they were right all along in the choices that they took. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my parents thought, why is he doing English at university? Why is he studying literature? You know, they were blue-collar people, working-class people. You went to college or university to get a trade, to get a profession. All I could think to say to them when they asked me what I was going to do was I'll be a teacher. You know, what else can you do with an English lit degree? Yeah. Um, they thought I was going to go to uni and be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. Um, and in fact, up until my last year at high school, I was going to be an accountant. I was going to study accountancy um, at Edinburgh University or elsewhere. And then, you know, there was this kind of moment of realisation halfway through my final school year that the only reason I was going to do this was to make money. It yeah. wasn't because I enjoyed the notion of being an accountant. That just so happened that in our family there was one uncle who was an accountant and he owned his own car and he owned his own home. And I thought, hey, you know, my parents never had a car and never owned their own home. I thought, I quite like that. So to, de- to get that, I have to be an accountant. Yeah. This is the only experience I know is this person that I know has done this and got this. Um, and then I just decided, no, why don't I go, you know, this is a once in a lifetime choice, chance, go to university and do something you want to do, do yeah. something you're passionate about. And I was passionate about books and passionate about literature. Um, but trying to persuade my parents that was a good idea was, was difficult, I think. Yeah. They never really understood. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, so there is a certain wish fulfillment there, but it also makes me wonder, I mean, speaking of this quest for the new, this quest of constant invention, Woody Allen has said, here in New York, that he has run out of locations and new places to shoot. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have faced a similar challenge with Edinburgh, where there are only so many places to write about. Uh, what is your quest for the, depicting the new? Do you consider yourself in part possibly a well, historian of Edinburgh? Obviously, I yeah. haven't run out of things to say about Edinburgh because I keep setting books there, even yeah. even with the demise of Rebus. Yes. When I did a standalone, doors open, yeah. set in Edinburgh. Came to the complaint, set in Edinburgh. I was never going to set it anywhere else. Why? because the, I began writing books about Edinburgh to make sense of Edinburgh and that process is ongoing. Uh, every time I think I know the city, something else happens, some twist, some piece of history comes along um, and shows me that actually I don't know the city at all or, yeah. or you know, there's some huge financial upheaval um, which actually starts to tear at the fabric of the city, you know, this city built on money, built yeah. on invisible industries, banking, insurance, the law and everything else. Um, 20% of the jobs depend in one way or another on the financial institutions. When a financial institution is going to meltdown, as the Royal Bank of Scotland did, that changes the nature of the city and makes people rethink what the city means to them. Um, so it just seems to me that every time I think I know the city, it turns out I don't, and there's something new to say about it. Yeah. And until I've done that, until I finish that sort of forensic analysis of this, this, uh, this living, breathing body, 
or mapping the DNA, maybe is a better analogy. Until I finish doing that, then I've got to keep writing about the place. Because I'm still trying to make sense of it. And it's a fantastic yeah. microcosm for Scotland as a whole, and I think just for, 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 for society. You know, It's a small city, but it, but it has everything that a city needs. So perhaps you're confining yourself willingly to Edinburgh, simply because any city is never going to be devoid of possible exploration. I mean, it's going to change. It's going to have some financial upheaval. Would you say that uh, a systematic development such as the economic collapse is more of a creative muse for you now than it was back in the sort of apprenticeship days? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the early Rebus books were very much, um, they were very plot-driven. They weren't theme-driven. I think the later books are much more theme-driven. And that's because as I got older and I got more confident about the crime novel, the more I wrote them, the more I got confident that they could do more than I was doing with them. They didn't just have to be whodunits. Yeah. They didn't just have to be about twists and turns and red herrings and stuff and revelations at the end. They could actually be dealing with um, with real contemporary issues, with big moral questions, with, with social problems. And in fact, if you want to write social realism and you want to write about the problems we have in society, what better way to do it than through the crime novel? Because the detective, unlike any other character I can think of, with the possible exception of a journalist, has access to every layer of society. So Rebus is able to talk to the the corporate um, bosses, he's able to talk to the politicians, but he can also talk to the disenfranchised, the dispossessed. Um, he's got access to all these layers. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very useful for me wanting to write about contemporary Scotland that I use that, that kind of character, and why would I want to change? So when it came time to write another book about the financial crisis in Edinburgh, go for a cop. Yeah, just a different kind of cop. I'm curious about this because Michael Connolly, who was also a journalist at one point, has discussed how he was worried that as a journalist, a lot of his sources and a lot of his contacts would possibly go away and this would prevent him from getting a lot of these really interesting stories that he could put in his novels. I'm wondering if you faced anything similar to that with your network of sources or whether you have uh, accidentally burned a source or if there are any problems. The the problem with my sources is that a lot of them have retired. Yeah. Uh, You know, they were... (laughs) They, they were kind of, uh, if they were my age, I mean, I'm 50, I'm going to be 51 this year, I, mostly they would be retired from the police. Yeah. So guys that I met in my mid to late 20s when I was starting off the series are now gone. Yeah. Um, and you either have to find a, a new set of people um, uh, or you just make it up. I mean, it is fiction after all. Yeah. Um, what I do is I've got enough people around me who can help me with the detail if I need them but I don't want to get too close to the police because I don't want the books to become PR, public relations exercises for the police. Yeah. And of course, the only people who will talk to you are the good cops. Yeah. The ones who are straight, you know. Um, they'll talk to you. Well, if that's the only people you're meeting, you may, might feel constrained and you might feel you can't suddenly write about cops who've broken the rules or who bend the rules a little bit. So I only go near the police when I need them. I mean, the complaints, I did need to talk to someone who had worked in internal affairs. I set that up through another contact who's a senior police officer. Um, But it was a couple of hours of conversation, and that was all I needed. That gave me a sense of what this organization would be like, what the office politics would be like, what kind of powers they had, what kind of stuff they did. Two hours. And the rest of it is invented. Have facts and background been more of a limitation than a help throughout your work or um well i mean i I do think there are restrictions on what you can and cannot do because readers are much more sussed than they used to be i mean they're watching cop shows on tv whether it's reality shows or 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 dramas or the wire Um, for that matter yeah you know but they so they feel they know what goes on forensically they feel they know what goes on at a crime scene 
So you can't suddenly start taking liberties. I mean, I'm very lucky because my guys are professional cops, therefore they would be at the scene. It's much harder if you're talking a kind of Miss Marple character. Yeah. This notion that an amateur detective, a Lord Peter Whimsey or a Miss Marple, could just turn up at the crime scene and trample all over it. And that the cops wouldn't give them a good kick up the backside and send them on their way is kind of, these days, it's, it's much harder for readers to take on board and, and accept. Um, so I don't write about private eyes and I don't write about you know amateurs who just happen to get caught up in the drama. I yeah. write about people who are invited into the drama because that's their job. On the other hand, there's of course the famous story that Mario Puzo made all of the Godfather up. So much so that mob people were reading this and they were saying, oh my god, how did he know so much about this? Is this similar to your situation when you invent something that almost inv inventing layers or systematic connections is almost uh, better than just relying upon what getting something right or something well like I mean the very first book I wrote I got the idea for the plot and then I went to a police station to talk to a couple of cops and they asked me you know just to get some background to get some detail and they asked me what the plot of the book was and I told them and it turned out it was very close to the case they were working on yeah so they viewed me as a possible suspect for a short time until they decided <laughs> that's just insane yeah but the next book after that, Hide and Seek, um, two or three years after the book was published, a similar case came to light. And that gave me great kudos in Edinburgh because cops and, and the public alike said, how did you know about this stuff? You know, I mean, it was kind of there. It was happening a few years ago, but it wasn't it didn't come to light then. And I had just invented it and it came true later on. So I got I kind of, you know, people thought I knew what I was talking about, but I really wasn't. I was making it up. Um, and that continued to happen. It was a, it happened. There was a lot of serendipity that I would just write about something that then seemed to be true, or, or but it worked the other way as well. I would take a really true thing like the G8 when the G8 came to Scotland, and that was just a great source of information. All you had to do to research that book was to live in Scotland for a week, mm -hmm. um, and that was a very easy book to write from my point of view because about half the stuff in there actually happened, up to and including President George W. Bush falling off his bicycle while trying to wave to a police officer. In my book, it's Rebus. In real yeah. life, it wasn't. It was someone yeah. else, but, you know. Well, aside from serendipity, to what do you attribute your intuition about figuring out a situation? Is it a matter of just being able to determine what someone is likely to do in, say, G8 or in any kind of murder situation? Or what, what yeah, I mean, I think it's empathy, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's, I mean, a novelist has to have great empathy, I think. And it's just a matter of people watching. And, you know, I mean, I've worked in big organizations during the course of my working life. So I, I don't think the police would be any different, for example. Um, you're going to have backstabbers. You're going to have people that are just trying to climb up the greasy pole. You're going to have people that are just waiting for their pension. Um, you'll have people who really want to get ahead, you'll have good guys and bad guys. Um, and office politics is office politics, I mean, whether it's the police or any other organisation. So that stuff I've always found fairly straightforward to, to, to show. Um, you get a maverick like Rebus, it's great because it means that you can you don't need to know what the rules are because he's not going to abide by the rules anyway. Yeah, you know? yeah. So you don't need to know that much about police procedure, just enough. I mean, in some cases I think police officers Plenty. I've met lots of them who want to be writers, but they wouldn't make very good writers because they don't know what to leave out. Yeah. What you've got to do is to hint that you've done the research, to hint that you know what you're talking about. And it's just a matter of a little bit of fine shading. Um, you know, a tiny little detail uh, is enough to persuade people that everything else must be true. And if, like me, you often use the real world for your plots and your scenarios, a lot of readers will read a book and go, hey, that actually happened. So yeah. then they start to believe everything else in the book, although that is a tissue of lies that you have woven around this little nugget of truth. Yeah. So the trick really is being relatively oblique, oblique 
in a way that's believable enough for the reader to fill in the gaps. And I'm curious if such a notion of being oblique but believable comes early on in this kind of crazy six-week first draft process or whether it's something that you have to think about over time. Um, the, the first draft is really just about making sure the plot works, yeah. the mechanics of the plot. Is this a believable plot? Would it work? The second and third drafts, I mean, nobody ever sees my first draft except me. The second and third drafts are about putting some meat on the bones, um, characterization, making the people believable, making them credible, making them three-dimensional. Um, if there's a theme you're trying to explore, have you brought the theme out properly? Now you've got the plot to work, can you make the theme work? Um, location. I mean, for example, I've got my first draft with me on this tour so I can read it and edit it and make comments to myself for the second draft. The infamous memory stick. Yeah, yeah. well, I've, I've actually brought, the, the, I've brought the, uh, the, the printout with me. I've got oh, okay. like a 300-page printout with me so I can actually write in the margins. Um, but the, uh, but, but the, the first draft will have big gaps and it will just say things like, I need to go to this town and check this out. I need to put in some local colour here. I need to describe this person here. Um, but the first draft is just me pushing through the plot to make sure that it actually works. Yeah. Um, the, so that's fast, and it, it means if you write it quickly that two things. One, you inject pace, I think, into the story. And two, you don't forget stuff. Yeah. If you write it quickly, you've got no time to forget the subplots and the twists and the turns and the red herrings. Um, having done that, you then can at a more leisurely pace make sure it's actually a proper novel and not just a machine. Yeah. You know, not just a carefully tooled machine, but actually has, has some sympathy, empathy, some humanity to it. This sounds similar to what William Gibson does on Book Tour, where he knows what his next book is going to be after he's done with this. I, I'm wondering, since you're in the process of kind of thinking and revising while you're on Book Tour, what it is about this wandering impulse that is particularly beneficent towards uh, answering these questions and getting things a little bit more complicated? I'm, I'm not sure it is beneficial. Uh, it just is that I'm up against a deadline. I mean, the yeah. deadline is the end of May. Yeah. Probably left to my own devices, I wouldn't have brought the book with me or I wouldn't be on tour. Yeah. I'd be at home working on the second draft. Yeah. Uh, I don't have, I'd, I have to come to the States because I've got the complaints out, so I had to bring the book with me. And yeah. normally I don't do any, I'm very jealous of writers who can write when they're on tour. I mean, my near neighbor, Alexander McCall Smith, writes in airport lounges, writes in his hotel room, writes on the airplane. I can't do that usually. You know, I, I can't write new material while I'm traveling. I'm jet lagged, uh, I'm caffeinated, I'm hungover. Uh, things that you shouldn't be when you're trying to write new material. Um, I think Michael Connolly writes on the road as well. He can, yeah. he can write in hotel rooms. You know, I, 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 don't, I, I think I've tried it and I just can't do it. That's really so, interesting. But editing, editing isn't too bad, yeah. but it means that I only get, like, the, the flight this morning from Boston to New York, I got yeah. 40 minutes of editing. Yeah. Really, I should be sitting there for five hours, get a flow going. You know, don't just stop and start and stutter along. Because yeah. um, the, the danger is that you'll forget that you've actually added something to the second draft when you come across a, a good place to put it. So it seems 20 pages down the line. So it seems that this crazy concentration that comes with a very productive first draft comes only because you are extraordinarily isolated and any yeah. form of intrusion will prevent you from... I mean, have you tried writing in hotel rooms and yeah. restaurants and cafes or anything? Or? Um, I, you know, I've tried it and it hasn't really worked. Huh. It hasn't really worked. Um, I need to be in my room, in my office, with music playing very softly, music of my choice, uh, endless supplies of coffee and, and Snickers bars, uh, all the comforts of home. I, I, I don't, you know, I need to be in that sort of zone because that 
small office is really the inside of my head. Dictionaries are there, um, uh, research materials are there, post-it notes with little notes to myself on them. you know, it, it is it is a sort of physical manifestation of the inside of my head. Snickers bars. Why is that the best form of sustenance? Because do I don't do smoke. To... If oh, I smoked, I I'd smoke. Uh, I see. Uh, any, I mean, usually any kind of chocolate bar, but Snickers are pretty good. Uh, uh, they get a great sugar rush. Uh, but the peanuts make you pretend you're having something almost healthy, right? How many of these do you require on any given aye, day? Aye, aye. Well, my wife will tell you. She used to buy them in packs of five from the supermarket because <laughs> they were it was cheaper that way. Yeah. Until she found out I was then eating five a day. <laughs> Five a day. If she bought five, I'd eat five. Did, what else did you eat that day? Was it just nothing but Snickers? Or? I'd, yeah, I'd have breakfast and I'd have dinner. But yeah. in between, it would be nothing but Snickers bars. Uh. And I wouldn't even realize I'd eaten them until I saw the empty wrappers on the floor. <laughs> You're a former smoker? Or? No, I've never smoked. Huh, and people find that really hard to believe because they find Rebus one of the most convincing smokers. I know there's some people who smoke, yeah. who read the books. And I used to smoke, he was convincing for me too. They'll yeah. offer me a cigarette and I'll say, yeah. I don't smoke. And I'll say, you don't smoke? I mean, yeah. my, wife, my wife, my mother died of lung cancer. <laughs> Well, so when I was like 17, 18, I was watching her go through this debilitating process of dying from lung cancer. Yeah. Uh, both my parents smoked. I've been around smokers all my life. I think smokers are great people. You know, if I'm in a bar, I want to be with the smokers because they're the interesting people. Yeah. And if they go outside for a cigarette, I go out with them because they're telling the best stories outside. That's you know? right. I hate being left alone at the table while the smokers go outside. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've just, you know, it's just one of these things that I've never been attracted to. Uh, I think partly I've got an addictive personality and I would, you know, once I start, that would be me, I'd be gone. I can't play computer games, same thing. When I was a student, I used to play computer games and I would play them all night. I wouldn't sleep, so I had to stop. Another Ian actually got so addicted to civilization that he couldn't actually beat his deadlines. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm curious, have you guys met? Oh, yeah. I mean, because you guys both have all the similar working process. He cranks out a book in three months as well. Yeah, he does, he does. I mean, I think he, I'm not sure if he still does it, but he used to be a bit more uh, anal than I am. I mean, he Uh, would start a book on the same day every year. Yeah. It's kind of a lucky thing with him. And he, and he goes for drives around Scotland, he takes a route map with him, and every time he goes on a road he's never been on before, he, he crayons it in. Really? So he's got this map, and it's just every, you know, he wants to drive on every single piece of road in Scotland by the time he dies. Um, whether he still keeps these, these uh, peccadillos up or not, I'm not sure. This explains uh, why he doesn't really leave the country. Yeah, he doesn't, do, he doesn't leave the country. You remember one time in, in, uh, in, in fury at the, the yeah. invasion of Iraq, he, he chopped up his passport and sent it to the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and then remembered that he was supposed to go to Australia on tour three weeks later, and he had to cancel the tour. Do you have any similar exigencies in terms of needing to drive on the roads of Scotland or anything along those no, lines? No, I'm not. I'm, from yeah, I mean, I, like I say, I'm a kind of addictive personality, so I'm always very careful to try and avoid things that can become addictive. The yeah. one thing that I would say at the moment I'm addicted to that is taking up more of my time than it should and I get twitchy when I'm not near it is Twitter. Yeah, I have and noticed that. I've got my phone with me and I can't always get uh, online um, so I can't always tweet. Yesterday was fine. Yesterday in Boston, my hotel had uh, had had free Wi-Fi, so I was on. The hotel I'm in in New York doesn't have free Wi-Fi, so I'm not on because uh, it's horrendously expensive to surf the web on a European phone. Yeah. When you're in America, um, but I'm missing it. Yeah. I like it. I mean, it's a. Gr- I mean, last night at the gig I did uh, in Boston, three at least three people came along who follow me on Twitter. Yeah. And I went for a drink with one of them. Never met them before. Uh, but I've met some great people through Twitter, and it's a kind of—it's like a, I used to keep a diary. I used to keep a page a day diary when I was a kid, from yeah. the age of 12 until I was 29. I kept a page a day diary, and I had to fill up every single page. Yeah. I couldn't leave any blank space. Why so, did you stop? 
we moved, my wife and I moved to, to France and it was part of the moving to France and it was part of the, what we decided to do was keep a, a house journal instead because we were having to redo the house, rewire it, put in new floors, put in new windows. And the house journal, we then left to come to America for six months. And by the time we got back, I had stopped doing it. Yeah. So I guess it was a six-month trip to America that stopped me writing a page a day diary. Yeah. But I use Twitter like it. I use Twitter as a kind of memento mori of everything I've done, you know. Yeah. I can scroll back through it and think, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember doing that. I remember going there. On the other hand, isn't there a certain risk in letting everybody know what you're doing yeah. all the time? Or? Yeah. yeah, I guess there is. Um, you become public property. I mean, writers are much more public property than they used to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, you only really knew the book. You didn't know the writer. Yeah. And then book tours became popular, and suddenly once a year or once every few years, you could maybe go along and see one of your favorite writers and ask them a question and get a book signed. And now, I mean, you know, I mean, people are tweeting me all the time um, what they think of the books, what they think I should be doing next, where am I going to go on tour, what kind of music have I been buying recently? Um, and I guess there is a, you know, there's a possibility you can start to think of these people as your friends, but you've never met them. Yeah. It's kind of a weird friendship. Is there a drawback to all of this instant feedback? I mean, on a certain level, you have to go ahead and bust out yeah. the manuscript and revise it. Sure. You can't have any interference. You can't no. know what the audience is going to be thinking. But if you're on Twitter, which, you know, it's easy to get sucked down that rabbit hole. Yeah. They're going to immediately start, you know going ahead and quibbling with this, quibbling with that, you know, I mean, what do you do? To but here's the weird, like, I mean, it's a weird thing because, I mean, I'm, I'm not very tech savvy. I mean, I, and, and I don't I do not do Facebook. Yeah. I've never been on Facebook. Uh, I know nothing about Facebook. I've watched the social network, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, why Twitter then and why not Facebook? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I found Twitter a, very useful as a little exercise in editing. Yeah. Can you edit your thoughts down to 140 characters? And it only takes a few seconds a day to tell people what you've been up to yeah whereas I think Facebook the potential is there for you to be on it all day every day yeah um, in a way that I don't think Twitter is when I started writing a new book I, I, I made a little vow to myself that I, w I wouldn't go near Twitter until the end of the working day yeah and I kept that up for about three weeks and then I would start if I stopped for a cup of coffee I would check Twitter you know stop for lunch check Twitter uh, and I've got to be careful how many people I follow because I, I, being an addictive personality, I feel the need to read every single tweet on the timeline. Yeah. So if I'm following 300 people, that's potentially 300 people's tweets I'm, I'm reading in any one day. You have to read them all. You can't just jump in and jump out. Because no, I just, I've got I to go know. back and read wow. them all. So like when I wake that's up in dedicated. the morning, when I wake up in the morning, I'll go back to the night before and sort of scroll through the night to find out what people were up to. I do eBay. I mean, I went through a stage of buying vinyl on eBay, buying records, second-hand records. And I would have. I, I didn't want to miss half an hour or, or ten minutes of action. So I had to, you know, if I finished browsing eBay, I would check. Like, say, I'd browse, browse the next eight hours. Okay, the next eight hours. What's that going to be? It's going to be midnight. I would write it down to myself so I could go back at midnight and make sure I hadn't missed anything. Wow, uh, it's insane. So it seems to me that you're really a master of compartmentalizing your time yes. and managing it. Yeah. Yes. I mean, my whole life is compartmentalized. That's very true. And in one of those compartments, it's John Rebus. <laughs> waiting for the moment when he gets to come out and play again. Yeah. So you're still, I mean, is it basically the backlist that you have to compartmentalize, or are you, are you possibly looking for some future there? Or, I mean, I that's the ob obligatory question, and I'm yeah. trying to figure out a way to... What, you mean am I going to bring Rebus back? Not, not, not so much that, but, you know, the shave on and things like that. Yeah. I I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I've never had a, a, a... There's never been a shape or a plan to my writing life. 
Uh, I'm sitting here writing a second book and the complaints. I don't know if there's going to be a third book. I don't have any plots for future books. Um, last year I didn't write any novels at all. Yeah. It was the first year since 1985 I hadn't written a novel. Yeah. Um, during that year I wasn't storing up ideas for plots. Yeah. You know, November came along, October, November, and I thought, oh shit, I need to write a book by the end of May. I better start thinking of stuff. So, unlike a lot of mystery writers, I don't have a, a, a supply of stories that are sitting there. You know, I mean, I, I meet writers all the time and say, oh, I know what the th- my next three or four books are going to be about. Yeah. What? Yeah. You know, I'm not like that. Um, I, 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 get, I think as I get older, ideas are harder to come by. What about the comics work? I mean, you did the John Constantine yeah. stuff. That was it. That was, that was, I mean, I did, I did one tiny um, comic strip for a Mark Miller comic in the UK, but that's yeah. all I've done in comics. But I'm wondering if... I got it out of my system in one yeah. big, one big squelch. True. I guess the question, though, I have is, by taking somebody else's character, was this a little bit more liberating than, I suppose, relying upon your own or having to invent a new one, in this case, Fox? Or? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what happened with that was that, you know, Vertigo Comics, part of DC, got in touch and they said, we believe from interviews that you've done, you're a fan of the comic book. Yeah. Have you ever thought about writing one? Uh, we've got a new imprint coming along, Vertigo Crime would be interested if you've got ideas. And they said it can be new stuff, it could be all your own new characters, uh, or it can be from the existing universe. Yeah. And I thought, ooh, so I can write about Batman and stuff. So I pitched some ideas at them, and some of the ideas were brand new things that I'd come up with, and some were for existing DC or Vertigo characters. And the one they really liked was a John Constantine. Um, so I thought, great, I get to write about Constantine. And I like him because he's a, he's a private eye. He's in the kind of classic private eye mold. It's just he deals with demons and possession and, and all sorts of weird, wonderful goings on. Yeah. Um, and I had a lot of fun because I, I, I structured it as an Agatha Christie kind of haunted house mystery where people are disappearing one by one and nobody knows why. And then Constantine is brought in. So it starts off as, as a kind of traditional English style whodunit and yeah. then gets very, very wacky from the halfway point on. Yeah. Uh, and anything can happen you want to happen, unlike the, the crime novel, which has to be set in a kind of realistic universe. With people like Constantine, you can go to hell if you want. Sure. You can literally go to hell, and, yeah. I, and, and I did, and it was great fun. And you're in good company with Neil Gaiman as well. There. Absolutely. I mean, I know Neil. I've done gigs with Neil before. Um, huge fan of his writing. I think he's, he's brilliant. And last August, one of the highlights of my life, as indeed it was for my 19-year-old son, uh, we got to meet Alan Moore at yeah. the Edinburgh Book Festival and we got to hang out with him for a few hours Yeah, and I mean I was such a fan of Watchmen that I called my third novel Watchman singular <laughs> in kind of homage to him that was in the mid 80s Yeah, um, just as Watchmen was coming out well, speaking of which I have to ask why you have characters named Faulkner and McEwen in the complaints <laughs> Uh, this sort of like highbrow writing. There's all kinds. There's all kinds of little in jokes. Yeah. Um, there's there's a couple of characters in the complaints named after rock musicians yeah. as well. Uh, Tony Kay is named after a rock musician of old. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, where the character names come from, you can have some fun. Uh, sometimes I use real people who pay money to charity to be in my books. Yeah. Uh, Your bookshelf, possibly. We were staring right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That can. Or you pick up the phone book and you open up the phone book. Mm-hmm. Um, if I hear good names, I tend to write them down so they're kind of sitting there for when I need names. Um, I've just noticed with the first draft of the new book, I've got some names that are far too similar. I've got a Willis, a Wilson, and something else, a Watson. And I thought, oh shit. So I've got some new names, and I'm just going to go through the first draft with replace. And when I get home on the computer, I'll just go through it and replace similar sounding surnames with unsimilar sounding surnames. To go back to the issue of compartmentalizing time, I have to ask if uh, this is also kind of a liability in the sense of wanting to perhaps 
write a 500 or a 600 or a super ambitious book or something that is goes well beyond or even something that you know I don't know really really complicated have you had that desire of late or did you get it out of your system with like sort of the 500 page rebus books or, or what of this well I mean a book is as long as it needs to be yeah uh, and in fact it's an in- you've brought up a really interesting point because the first draft of this new book Around about the 200 page mark, I thought, whoa, this isn't going to, this doesn't feel like it. When I started the book, I thought it's a big theme, it's a big story, it's going to be a big book. By 200 pages, I thought, no, this is a 300 pager, I'm going to, it's just going to reach 300. Um, But a book is as long as it needs to be. I I could have started trying to pad it out, and I thought, no, you don't do that, you don't pad it out. The book is as long as it is. Um, So it just crept past 300 in the first draft, which is about, I mean, it's 100,000 words. Yeah. But it's not a huge crime novel. I mean, there was this perceived bias, I think, uh, that we faced up to back when I was a young writer that said a crime novel under 250 pages is just about the whodunit. Yeah. If you get it over 350 towards four, it's a bigger book, it's got a bigger message, it's got some kind of theme and some story to it. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly crime writers start to make bigger and bigger books. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I've been through it, man. I mean, I read the three Girl with a Dragon to two books. My God, they could have done with quite a lot of editing. Yeah. Just because it's a six or 700 page book doesn't mean to say it's a, a big book. Well, that, was, that was a small book masquerading as a big book. Great Gatsby Postman always yeah. twice. They're like 45,000 words. Absolutely. So. I mean, I did my PhD thesis on Muriel Spark, and Muriel yeah. Spark's best novels were under 200 pages. I mean, yeah. way under. Premier Miss Jean Brodie's 125 pages. Um, yeah, I mean, these are useful things to know that, uh, you know, that you don't need a book to be huge, to be important, or to yeah. be good. Well, the question, though, I suppose, is if... Do you have a desire to hone your prose even more than it already is, or do you feel that by doing that, it's kind of fuss with the story too much? I think it depends on on the. Um, it depends how much of a story and a theme you've got. Um, for example, the doors open. When I wrote it, was written as a serial for the New York Times, and it was a hundred pages in total. Um, my publishers in the UK said, well, we like this, but it's a bit short at 100. Can you beef it up? They didn't give me a kind of limit or anything. They just said, can you beef it up? Um, make it more publishable as a standalone novel. And it was great for me because it seemed to me the characters had just been thumbnail sketches and the plotting of the heist had been very thin because I just didn't have space to do, to, to do more with it. So I was able to let the, the plot breathe. Uh, and let the characters breathe, and it crept up to 300 pages without yeah. me trying too hard. So yeah. obviously that was intended to be a 300-page book, yeah. not a 250, not a 400. Um, this new book, you know, is going to go over. I mean, the second draft, third draft will bulk it up a little bit because there's some stuff that I realise I need to put in it isn't in there yet. Um, but it's not going to go above 350 because that's the length it is. Yeah. Um, I would love to go. You know, if I could, if I could distill the message, the meaning, the theme of the book and everything to under 200, I would do it. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I hugely respect writers like Muriel Spark. The premise Jean Brodie is a big book. It's got big themes, big characters. Uh, it, it's big in concept and it's big in visualisation, but it's 125 pages. Yeah. Maybe I've just not got that skill. It's a poet skill. She was a poet. Yeah. You know, she started off as a poet. That's a poet's skill of distillation. Yeah. I want to also ask... There was a story today, oddly enough, in Publishers Weekly that indicated that in January, e-books have now trumped mass markets, they've now trumped hardcovers. In the U.S., yeah. In the U.S. Um, you know, and obviously a lot of this has to do with the holiday gifts of Kindles and e-book readers and the like. You 
came up with the Rebus books where they, it was a very much a, a mass market medium. Um, and also, it was a time period in publishing when writers would have several books to kind of develop their voice and then after about five or six there would be a you know a time where you can you know hey wait a minute but now it's like two or three uh, I'm wondering in launching Malcolm Fox if first of all you feel that ebooks is actually as legitimate a medium as mass market paperbacks and and whether you feel the brunt of these commercial forces that says hey Ian I don't care about Rebus we need you to get it right with Malcolm Fox and like two or three books or else we're just going to go ahead and cut you loose or we're going to have you try something else. Is there, yeah. is, what, are, what are these concerns? Um, well, I think my American publishers were very happy for me to bring a new character into play because the problem with a long-running series is attracting new readers. Yeah. Uh, a reader may be put off by the notion of entering a series at book 12 or 13. Yeah. They think, oh, I've missed an awful lot, so I'm not going to bother with that. Um, so if you can start them at book one again, or with a standalone, um, you can actually get new readers, yeah. uh, as well as the, your existing fans. So I think they were very keen on that. Ebooks uh, is, you know, very interesting. I mean, from a European perspective, from a British perspective, we're at least a year behind you guys. Um, publishers in the UK are still burying their heads in the sand, pretending it. Amazon isn't going to take off, and yeah. the Kindle isn't going to take off. Kindle's doing um, a little of that too, as well. Yeah, yeah. but. I, you know, I just look at the music industry and I think what's going to happen is what's happened with the music industry. What you're going to get is you're going to get a premium product. The premium product is going to be a hardcover book, beautifully crafted hardcover book, limited edition, numbered, signed, whatever, with the download code included if you want to download it to your Kindle. And that's going to cost you a little bit more. Or you can just have the ebook, or you can have something in the middle which is a kind of disposable uh, paperback novel. I mean, I don't see any problem with giving away download codes for an extra buck if you buy the if you buy the book, um, because there's some instances in which a Kindle isn't going to be right for you. I mean, I wouldn't uh, would I take one on vacation maybe to use on the plane, but am I going to leave it by the pool? Am I going to leave it on the beach when I go in the sea? This is a two hundred hundred dollar two hundred dollar machine. It's not a six dollar paperback. Yeah, uh, it could get stolen. It could get damaged. It could get water damaged. Am I going to take it in the bath with me? Probably not. Yeah. So hopefully there'll still be. A market for the for the paperback, for the yeah. soft cover. I think there'll also be a market for a kind of premium hardcover as well. Um, and if people just want the download, they can just get the download. Yeah. So, what I do think, the, what I think is problematic, is the relationship between the author and the publisher. I mean, I think publishers are going to suffer because a lot of authors are going to say, "We don't. Why do we need you? Yeah. If we can sell the rights direct to Amazon, what they will lose out on, and they don't realise this, the authors will lose out on is editing. Yeah. And so you're going to get a lot of dross because Amazon, are, you know, if you go along to Amazon and say, look, I'm, a, I'm an unpublished writer, I've got this little tiny file here, you can put it on your site, sell it for 99 cents, give it a go, see what happens. It's not taking up space in your warehouse, it's not taking up space on any bookshelves. You would say, yeah, okay, let's give it a go and see. But there's no editing going on in that. It's just, it'll be rough as anything in some cases. And you may sell some copies and you may not. Um, so I think that publishers are still needed because they need to, they need, they, there needs to be that winnowing out of the stuff that's not very good. Unless, of course, there's some sort of side industry that emerges. Hey, before you publish this on editors. the Kindle, yes, freelance, freelance editors. editors. I could, if I were in business right now along those lines, I would immediately, st hey, before you publish on Kindle, we can help you out. And yeah, the fact maybe that, that there's happen. already a freelance editing business yeah. going for a lot of the small presses as well. Uh -huh. So you know. Yeah. I mean, it's got, I think the next few years, it's just going to be a sea change. Yeah. It's going to be a sea change in publishing and book selling. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
hopefully, and I think this is right, the, the small, good indies, the boutique bookshops will, will continue to, to exist and, and will thrive. Yeah. Um, they'll just be giving you a different service and they'll be selling you a slightly different product. Well, there's the there was the new story about last week, Waterstones, uh, mm-hmm. was basically trying to adopt the very indie book culture yeah. that it had put out of business and Absolutely. that survived. The great irony right now here in the States, too, with borders collapsing, is that indie bookstores, I mean, we've, we've had three open here in New York really? in the last, like, three or four years. Huh. I mean, you know, we've got Word Brooklyn, uh, you've got uh, Greenlight Books. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, indie bookstores are opening and continuing. I mean, borders I, maybe, it's, maybe it's just uh, sentiment. But I just don't think anything can replace browsing in a physical bookshop. Yeah. You know? I mean, just as a a fun thing to do. Yeah. Um, And there's a kind of backlash that I'm seeing as well where young people, as I must call them, I'm in my 50s now, um, are turning back to vinyl. Yeah. They're turning away from the, the download. They're turning away from the 79 cent or whatever it costs to download one track. And they actually want the physical product. And they want something that's beautiful, it's artistic, it's an artifact. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there were more record decks sold in Europe last year than CD players. I think the CD's on the way out. Yeah. But I think vinyl will remain. Vinyl will see out the CD as it saw out the cassette. Um, because well, it's an artifact, and you could say the book's the same. A hardback book is like a, is like a nice chunk of vinyl. Well, not just that, but you have a, a great DJ culture. People need to go yeah. ahead and spin the turntables. They're going to need the records. That's in, true. In many cases. But but what they're doing is they're putting out you know they're putting out classic sixties and seventies albums, yeah. reissuing them at, at fifteen twenty bucks a time, and people yeah. are buying them. Yeah. And I bought. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I went to three vinyl shops yesterday in Boston. I'm the very guy to keep buying this stuff. So I hope again. I hope it's not just sentiment on my part. <laughs> I wanted to go back to the complaints. There's something I wanted to talk about in terms of gesture. The complaints has what I would call a very cheeky dilemma, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, you have a lot of pecks on the cheek. At one point, you have Jude pecking Fox on the cheek before leaving his car. You have Fox pecking Audrey Sanderson on her powder cheek, a single tear running down Jude's left cheek. You have Brogan puffing out his chest a little. Then you have Heaton puffing out his cheeks and exhaling. I don't want to suggest that there's some sort of dormant psychological impulse here, but it does raise the question of, well, how do you keep a rhythm or a language of gesture distinct? Do you feel that you're variegated enough or that there's a certain rhythm that comes with the cheeks, so to speak? <laughs> or uh, or is there just only so many ways to describe being well, you've, the cheek? You've, you've done a close textual analysis, which hopefully most readers won't, and they won't notice how much pecking on the cheek. You see, I'm going to have to take all that out of the second draft now. Any, any pecking on the cheeks now, my second draft will have to go. Um, somebody once noticed, they said to me, a reader said to me years ago, how come in every Rebus novel there's a trestle table? You know, like yeah. a, a table that you can fold up and put away. And I went, what? That is she true. Said, how come all the cars are red or something? And, she, you know, and people know, and I, so I went and looked, and ever since then there's never been a trestle table and there's never been a red car in any of my books. Um, I guess it's ticks. It's, it's, it's authorial ticks. There are things that you, you don't notice you're doing at the time when you do them. I'm terrible for repeating words. Yeah. Uh, and I, usually I pick it up in the second or third draft. Yeah. So that in one sentence there'll be the word there'll be the word draft, and then it'll be in the second sentence as well, or yeah, a couple of sentences later. There it is. It's obviously a, a word that has resonated with me, so I've decided to use it again, not realising I've just used it. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's something of that in this. I do think also you are trying to you're you're trying to show people's emotions and how they're feeling without spelling it out too much in the prose. 
you know I don't want to use I don't want to say you know he ejaculated he, he, he said angrily yeah. I try not to do that no. or, or she said cry you know um, uh, sympathetically or she said sadly I hate all those L-Y words I hate all those adverbs they're called adverbs I believe yeah. Yeah. I hate all that um, so I'll do anything except use them um, it's just something. I mean, Elmore Leonard is great at this. It's just he said, she said, he said, she said. Somehow you get across the fact that the relationship is changing, that one is, one is getting angry, one is getting irritated. Yeah. But he's not giving any clues to it uh, with the adverbs. So you find ways to do it, I guess. Um, Juxtaposition of action in the middle of dialogue and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And you want to keep it flowing, and sometimes you just have to put something in because the, there's a there's a rhythm to the to the dialogue, and it just needs something to keep the rhythm going. So you need somebody to do something. They yeah. twitched. They moved in their chair. They 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 rolled their shoulders. Yeah. Um. They rubbed their eyebrow. Uh, they stroked their chin. It's just a way of breaking up the the dialogue and and giving the reader a sense that time has passed and they're thinking about their answer. That you know they're maybe a little bit edgy, a little bit twitchy. Um, without saying, oh, by the way, this person is twitchy. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you know, I've never been to any writing classes, so yeah. I don't know how to do this. Nobody's taught me how to do this stuff. I kind of make it up as I go along. You mentioned using the same word over and over and over again. I, I know there's like an open office plugin where you can apply to a manuscript, and it will give you a list of how frequently you've used a word. Oh, my have you, God. Are you agonized to that level? Or no. editor agonized to that level? Or copy I, editor? Basically yeah. Saying, Ian, you can't use Twitch. I'm, I'm kind of lucky. I mean, I still do have... I mean, I've got a good editor. She's yeah. a good reader. She's a kind of very good reader. Uh, and she's my editor. And she's freelance. She retired from the business. But I, I promised... Uh, well, I begged her to keep me on as a kind of free, in a freelance facility. Um... Then I've got a good copy editor as well, uh, and come proofreader, and they will notice things. They'll say, "Well, you've just you used that a couple of pages ago, that that very same phrase." I go, "Okay, so I'll change it." So there's a lot of filtering goes on. I mean, there's you know, I, I get to look at the second draft and tweak it. I get the third draft to tweak it. My wife reads the third draft and might suggest some changes. The editor might suggest some changes. The copy editor, come proofreader, might suggest some changes. So by the time it gets to the reader. There's been a lot of chances to pick up. There's still mistakes creep in. Things creep in, you know, commas that shouldn't be there or, you know, paragraph breaks that shouldn't have been paragraph breaks, but not much. How do you deal with the fatigue of just getting sick of staring at a manuscript? I mean, you've, you've changed it, you've revised it. I don't want to look at this anymore. I mean, at what point is that, is that pretty much the indication that, you know what, let's go on to the next book or I want to go and take a year off or something like that again I think deadlines are very useful yeah because you know come the 31st of May whether I think this book is ready or not I will hand it over yeah um, and if they don't think it's ready hopefully they'll tell me yeah um, hasn't happened so far uh, I usually try and keep my delivery as, as close to the deadline deadline as possible so they can't ask me to do too many changes yeah uh, I mean, time was when, you know, I would agree with everything my editor said and I would change everything she asked me to change. And now, whether through laziness or because I think I've done this enough that I know what I'm talking about, I may argue my corner and not make as many changes as I used to. Huh. Um, but, you know, usually she's right, I would guess. Um, and usually it's laziness on my part that I don't really want to go and change that scene too much. I'll, I'll tweak it a little bit, but I'm not going to tweak it wholesale. Uh... So yeah, deadlines are useful for that kind of thing. But you know, they always say a book's never finished. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's one book in mind that I've never allowed to be back into print. I had one print and it went, and that was West Wind. Very early on in my career. I mean, it's now very expensive to buy online because it's, it's so, you know, there was one hardback uh, and one paperback and it was gone. Because I just don't like it. 
I just don't think it's a finished book. Yeah. Should writing be difficult? That's a tough question. Um, There's only four words. I, I, yeah. Yeah, but you know, like Muriel Spark uses four words and it means an awful lot. Um, poets could use four words and mean an entire universe. Uh, you know, I started writing as a hobby. You know, when I was very young, I started writing because I just liked doing it. I liked making up stories. I liked making up universes and playing God in them, having complete control over the events and the characters. And that's fun. And it's therapeutic. You know, writing is therapy, I think, whether you realize it or not. Um, it's getting stuff out of your system. I mean, I get a lot of stuff out of my system by, by putting it down on paper. It's, uh, it earths me, if you will. It, uh, it, it uh, exercises the demons. Um, so, to that extent, it's fun. It's, it's, it's fun because you're playing. You're, you're, you're basically a kid who's never grown up. You're still playing with your imaginary friends and you're still playing the role-playing games that all children play. And then are told at some point not to play anymore. And that's a kind of weird thing for me that you're told you have to put these childhood notions away now. Because there's nothing better than remaining a child to that extent that you're still playing these wonderful games with your invisible friends. Um, but it is also hard work. I mean, because there's all these challenges that you set yourself. I mean, no writer wants to write a new book and think, well, it's not as good as my previous books, but it will do. We all think, or we all want to think, or the book we're writing at the moment is our best book. Um, so that's hard, because if you've, for example, you've done a series with 17, 17 books with the same character, how do you make the next book different and better yeah. than the books before it? You know, you win prizes with a book, you win the Edgar and you win the Gold Dagger, and you think, well, how do I top that? Yeah. You know? So that's hard. And of course, you've also got the young whippersnappers nipping at your ankles or nipping at your knees or nipping at your bollocks. Yeah. Who are saying, yeah, we're coming after you. We're young, we're bright, we've taken on the crime novel, we're doing new things with the crime novel, you're the old school now. They have fired pistols at you, challenging you to duels. <laughs> I can't, no, not like that. But there's, but there's a kind of sense that, you know, when I started off, I was, I was kind of young and excited. And I'd come to the States to conventions and I'd meet a young Michael Connolly who was just starting out and I'd yeah. meet a young Pelicanos who was just starting out. Uh, and and we would we would think there's the old guard. We can see the old guard. They're over there. Yeah. Um, in the UK, with people like Ruth Rendell and P.D. James, and then suddenly the, the, your your life flashes before your eyes, and you are the old guard. Yeah. And here's this new generation of young writers who are taking their tips from different places. They're maybe influenced by the Scandinavian crime novel. They're maybe influenced by manga. They're maybe influenced by television shows. Yeah. Uh, and you were in, you had different influences, so they're a different school from you, and they're a different generation from you. So you've you but you want to still be good. You want to be as good as them, if not better. So you've got to work hard at your craft, no yeah. doubt about it. But if the fun goes out of it, and you're only doing it for the money, or you're only doing it because you think there's a readership out there who want you to keep going, you're in trouble. So staying young and keeping it fun is a way to avoid the reality that you might, in fact, be the old guard. Yeah, yeah. I am the old guard. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've seen it in the newspapers in Scotland. I'm the grand old man of Scottish crime writing. Man, I was that uh, 44 years old, and they were calling me the grand old man. You know, I got the lifetime achievement award, the Diamond Dagger. I was in my 40s. Yeah. I thought, come on, guys, I'm not finished. <laughs> you know, is that them saying go away now? You've, you're past your prime. Is it, is, have we seen the prime of Ian Rankin and it's, and it's now gone? I don't know. So how does an old dog learn new tricks? Is it a matter of introducing him to the fox? Man, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, it really is... It's just a matter of... It's, it's a matter of, of still having questions about the world, still being puzzled by the society around you, still having new things to tell people about the city that you live in, 
um, and still, still being interested, spending time with these imaginary characters. And the more you write about them, the more you find out about them, the more three-dimensional they become, um, the more you cherish them and you cherish your time with them. I don't have many friends in the real world. I have colleagues, I have people I meet occasionally, but lifetime bosom buddies, people I've known since school, uh, people I would see every week, no, not yeah. so much. I mean, I've got a few friends from school days that I still see, yeah. and that's more than a lot of people. But I see them maybe once a month or once every six months. We might stay in touch by email a couple of times a year, yeah. you know. Um, but my friends are all these imaginary characters inside my head. Yeah, and they will never go away. They're the oldest friends you have? Or? They're kind of there. They're yeah. there or thereabouts, oh. you know. Um, but it could all have been so much different, you know. I mean, the first things that I started writing after the comic books were song lyrics for my imaginary band. Yeah. If I'd got a band together, if I'd had any musical ability whatsoever, maybe I would have been the rock star I really wanted to be. And I wouldn't have had to settle for second best, a novelist. Well, Ian, thanks so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure. Uh, thanks for bringing me to this very interesting location. <laughs> Melody. Melody. It was a Saturday night.